Oh, hey, I'm glad you're here. As a child, I had an imaginary friend. I did. Maybe I mentioned this to you. His name was Charlie. He was a Japanese chef who worked solely in Hawaii. So if you're keeping track, as a kid, I invented a friend who was never around. I know, it's depressing. This is way before I got into Clan of Zymox and The Cure, so just goth at birth, I suppose. But eventually, I made a real friend. A buddy, whose house I would stay at, or he would come stay at mine, and we would pick out movies and try to stay up all night. And at recess, we would play out our favorite scenes from the films and go on rogue adventures into the woods, in people's orchards, and drainage ditches. I know, my mom was right. She could have found me in a ditch. But what she didn't know is that Aaron and I were armed with nunchucks and hand-whittled ninja swords. Cue the theme from Ditch Ninjas. I'm kidding, that's not a real movie. It might be, and if it is, Godfrey Ho directed it. Our inspiration of many adventures came from on-screen friendships, from Tango and Cash to Private Joe Armstrong and Corporal Curtis Jackson of American Ninja, uh, Buster McHenry and Hank Storm and Renegades, to Matthew Sykes and Sam Francisco and Alien Nation, a movie where aliens have testicles in their armpits. It's truth. Real thing. Well, this episode's film has two buddies who are so great it should be a crime that they only made one of these films. Right? It's breaking the law. That's the segue. Okay, let's get right to the episode. The film is Shakedown. My guest is a lawyer, and this is VHS. And welcome to VHS, the podcast where each episode is about a film and the guest has the profession or experience portrayed in the film. I'm your host, Dirk Marshall, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at VHUS underscore podcast. And please do, as I love to hear your thoughts and experiences with the films and professions. For this episode, I'm joined by Mike Scott, a lawyer. Thank you for being here. Happy to be here, man. I'm looking forward to it. Now, as someone who knows nothing about lawyers at all, uh, what flavor of lawyer are you? So I am a criminal prosecutor. Uh, so I work for the government and, and, you know, prosecute bad guys, essentially. Okay, awesome. I love that. Uh, and people can find you and more about you on Twitter at Hibachi Justice. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and they can also find my show, Adkins Undisputed, uh, dedicated to the films of Scott Adkins by just going to Linktree slash Adkins Undisputed pod. That was my next three things. So thank you for covering that for me. Uh, yeah. And my next question is, did you ever think when you started a podcast dedicated to Scott Adkins and his films that a regular guest you would have would be, in fact, Scott Adkins? Never in a million years. Never in a million years. Like, I was hoping at some point I would be able to, like, interview him. Sure. You know, I, I, but I wanted to I wanted to get most of the show done so that I had a pretty substantial like body of work before I started reaching out. And, you know, and I was putting feelers out, like, can you hook me up with his PR people and mm. stuff like that? And then he reached out to me like three episodes in <laughs> and, and, you know, and it just kind of took off from there. We did a, a handful of marathon recording sessions talking about all his movies um, and then we just recently wrapped up. It's not, you know, at, at the time we're recording, uh, it hasn't all been released yet, but we wrapped up a mini series where he and I are talking about what we think are the five greatest action stars of all time. And it's just literally him and me shooting. Uh, can we swear on this? Yeah, that... you can say whatever you want. Okay. It's literally just him and me shooting the shit. And, um, and that's been a lot of fun, but yeah, like not only is he a regular guest, we've, 
I wouldn't go as far as to call us friends, but we're certainly friendly. Yeah. And so the idea that like my favorite actor, I am now like on a first name basis with, we text each other. Like it's really insane. <laughs> like if you told me a year ago, I would not have believed you. Yeah. I, I love it. I, I, um, you know, just like a lot of people, I think in the last couple of years, because of the volume of work that he was putting out, I kept seeing this guy popping up in movies. And I was like, I'm not super, you know, in tight with all of the action, like um, companies and, you know, all the all the directors and and everything. So I was like, who is this guy? And then as I started to get into it, I came across your podcast as well as his YouTube channel, which what's the name of that again? Uh, so the, the YouTube channel is just the official Scott Adkins YouTube, but okay. what, what you're probably talking about is his series, the art of action. Yeah. Yeah. These other action stars and they geek out and, yes. uh, and that's one of the greatest things about talking to him is he is a fan first and foremost. Yeah. And, and that really comes through. Yeah. It blew me away. Just the wealth of knowledge. And then just the like jovial care and how much they, you know, just enjoyed each other's work and everything is just fascinating. And it just like, I just started getting deeper and deeper into this stuff that I've been missing for, for quite some time. And then the thing I love about on your podcast is that you get a whole different side of him because he's, he's talking about action and stuff, but we get more like humor. He's a funny guy. And some of the roles that he's in, you know, it's not a funny role as he kicks the crap out of like everybody on screen. Um, so just in your episode that you were just talking about, it's just now airing is talking about the top five action people. Um, I believe Keanu Reeves is the one I was listening to today. And there's a section where both of you go back and forth doing Al Pacino impressions. And it, <laughs> it is, he's first of all, really good at it. And secondly, it's just like, it's just so funny um, just to see the other sides of these actors that are also super athletic and can do things that are just like mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, you'd really expect somebody like him who's had, at least in his world, the success that he's had. Yeah. You know, he's incredibly physically fit, incredibly physically gifted. He could, you know, kick most people's butts. Oh, yeah. Uh, you really wouldn't expect him to be that humble, but he mm. totally is. He's just down to earth and and humble. And yeah, I really, I, I do okay impersonations, but I really hate doing, trying to do them with him because he just blows me away every single time. Uh, and it's just, he's really good at all of them. Well, and he also shatters, I think, the misconception that exists for like action stars where they're just like a brawny beefcake, but they can't act very well. Um, he's a really good actor. And, you know, as 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 well as he can do these crazy spinning kick things where I'm like, that's not wire work. How is he doing this? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he started his career going to the Weber Douglas Academy in, in England, which is one of the like foremost acting schools in England. And yeah. he ended up having to, to drop out due to finances but i mean he's put acting first and foremost mm. in addition to being able to you know pretend like gravity doesn't exist yeah exactly well put uh so that is the atkins undisputed podcast correct correct all right um what started your passion for action <laughs> It's kind of been there my whole life. Um, I, I had an, uh, well, I still have, I shouldn't say had, he's <laughs> still with us. Uh, I have an uncle that uh, was quite a bit younger than my mom. Um, and so he and his wife would 
they were kind of like the built-in babysitters when my parents went out. Okay. And uh, he came of age. I, I'm 44, so I was born in 1976. So my uncle came of age in the era of like Bruce Lee and Godzilla movies and stuff like that. So he really, he was my initial gateway into all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a big Chuck Norris fan when I was a kid. Just something about action always grabbed my attention. I just, my whole, you know, and maybe part of it is just even growing up on stuff like Star Wars. I was a major Star Wars kid and and Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, I just always gravitated towards action. And then in particular within that, martial arts movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of built and went. And then in particular in 1989 uh, or 88, I guess, uh, when Bloodsport came out with Jean-Claude Van Damme, that was it. I was done. I was yeah. a martial arts guy, you know, because shortly after that, I discovered Hong Kong cinema and John Woo and Jackie Chan. And I just really threw myself head first into uh, Hong Kong cinema. And that that was it. I was done. That was that was going to be my thing. Um, I like I like plenty of other genres. Sure. Um, in fact, sometimes I kind of uh, lament getting pegged as the action guy because I don't get invited on to talk about a ton of other movies very yeah. often, um, which is fine. Action's what I know. I I love you know my friend Daniel Epler has a podcast dedicated to classic cinema. Yeah. I love classic cinema, but I can't talk about it as intelligently as Daniel can. Um, but I feel like I can kind of talk action as well as anybody out there. Not, not to sound, you know, arrogant, but it's my thing. I love it. It's what I know. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. And just from our brief interactions on the old Twitter, I was like, this is what this guy knows. And I've made purchases based on things that you've recommended. So thank you for that. And, uh, and you don't ever come across as some sort of know-it-all, but you seem someone that's very passionate and eager to share knowledge. And I love that. I appreciate that. Hopefully my recommendations don't let you down. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I'm not picky, so it should be pretty good. Uh, well, we're brought together today by the film Shakedown from 1988. I know this isn't a first time view for you. So what was your history with Shakedown? So I would have first seen it in 88, 89, whenever it came out, first came out on VHS. Um, yeah, 89, I think. By that point, I was already a big Sam Elliott fan uh, because of Roadhouse. And I was already a big Peter Weller fan because of Robocop. Yeah. And, and even almost more importantly, Buckaroo Banzai. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of the two of them together, uh, I was all in on, even though I was only, you know, 11 years old or 12 years old. And I'll be honest with you, in 1989, when I watched it, I didn't, I, I liked it, but I didn't love it because it's a pretty, it's a pretty, adult oriented yeah. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of you know for a movie that involves so much action and there is a ton of action in it there's also a lot that's going to go over a 12 year old's head in this movie um yeah and then i revisited it i think probably when it came out on dvd maybe or or blazer disc i can't remember but i actually hadn't seen it for probably 15 or 20 years until i revisited it for this yeah. um that's great. I uh, same way minus the revisits. I saw it when it first came out in my dad's video store. I couldn't snatch it off the shelf fast enough. I remember it being a new release. And so I had to wait because they only could afford in his shop like two copies. And so it took a couple weeks, but then I finally got my hands on a returned one and, uh, and I watched Shakedown and same. I mean, we're at similar age. So it just kind of like, I was like, I don't know. It feels pretty grimy. And you know, it's like, so it's all right. And then I rewatched it 
to have this conversation. And I was like, oh, I totally get why this went over my head. Like I had no idea about this S&M situation and like all the cocaine stuff. I was just, you know, I knew about Sam Elliott's big ass gun was about all I really understood. But yeah. And, and there is so much legal stuff. I mean, that's what is actually really cool about, you know, which I don't want to jump ahead too far, but that, Oh yeah, we'll get to that for sure. That is what's cool about this movie is it's kind of this weird hybrid eighties action movie and courtroom drama. And so if you're just there for the action, half the movie's probably going to, especially when you're a kid, you're just going to be out of half the movie. Right. Um, and, but you know, as an adult, it, I like the the weird mix. Like, I love the weird mix. Yeah. The uh, synopsis is a legal aid lawyer, Peter Weller, and an undercover officer, Sam Elliott, check a drug dealer's story of police corruption. That's the tagline. At the time of the recording, you can rent it at your local video store, like Movie Madness here in Portland, Oregon, stream it, or you can own the Blu-ray, as we've mentioned, which has a great commentary by the director, James Glickenhaus. Uh, let's take a look at who's involved. Our directors, James Glickenhaus, did The Astrologer, The Exterminator, The Soldier, The Protector, not The McBain. For some reason, he just went with McBain there. Uh, he also wrote all those films, which is which is pretty amazing. The editor is Paul Fried, who did Shakedown, Soldier, Call Me, and Rude Awakenings, which was an interesting way to, to wrap up that run. Our cinematographer is John Lindley, 73 credits, and still going strong with Money Train, Pleasantville, The Core, and Serpent and the Rainbow. And then actors, we have Sam Elliott, 103 credits. Talk about an amazing uh, actor currently in the upcoming MacGruber TV show and started the way West in 1967. Uh, in between those type two titles, we have Roadhouse, Frogs, Fatal Beauty, Tombstone, The Big Lebowski, and many more. And, and then Peter Weller currently in the MacGyver TV show. God, I hope there's a MacGruber MacGyver crossover with those two just to bring Shakedown back. Uh, he was in RoboCop, Naked Lunch, Screamers, A Killing Affair, and Of Unknown, of Unknown Origin, which we've covered before. Uh, Richard Brooks is the last one I wanted to mention. He was in The Hidden, The Crow City of Angels, Teen Wolf, and lots of television, including Law and Order for a number of years. Uh, also, Shakedown was originally called Blue Jeans Cop, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Uh, after this production, Glickenhouse was offered Judge Dredd, which would have been really interesting and way darker. Uh, and then Steven Seagal also wanted to work with James Glickenhouse, but that never came to fruition. But for us, let's press play on Shakedown. One thing I promise not to do in this courtroom is to pretend to you that I am representing Snow White for a client. An overworked lawyer. Once upon a time, all I plan to do is play the tennis axe forever. An undercover cop. This gun is clean. No serial numbers. <laughs> They're up against a city where the bad guys have taken over. My client will make bail. And the good guys are the worst of all. You cops, you're the best that money can buy. Uh, we kick it off with rap and awesome blue credits. It's Red Hot Chili Peppers covering a Bob Dylan song. What? That is totally insane. <laughs> uh, the streets are riddled, and I mean riddled with drug containers, and we see a man smoke crack. Again, we were both 11 or 12 watching this movie. <laughs> Uh, it's Richard Brooks, who's an amazing actor. Uh, this shot, this area where they shot, is uh, famous for films like Cruisin' and Death Wish and is also the cover of the Ramones album Too Tough to Die. It's where they were standing in that little, uh, little uh, overpass walkway. 
a man approaches to buy drugs and the guy asks him to turn off that rap music. And as he does, he very obviously hits the record button, which is great because that's coming back. Then they say car 54, where are you? Which gets a laugh every time. Uh, and then both men have shot each other. There, there's a brief scuffle and we next see another boom box. A cassette goes in and we get Hendrix as a, a person makes a smoothie with a raw egg and Maxwell House. And it's Peter Weller. Uh, he says he's making an Orange Julius. As a lawyer, can they use that name in the script or can Dr. Orange Julius sue them for defamation of beverage? <laughs> I think I think I think they probably got permission. I think they're probably OK. OK, OK, cool. <laughs> Uh, his fiance calls it heavy metal, which he corrects her, which is good. Uh, he's got a week left as a legal aid. What is a legal aid? So he's what we typically call a, a, a term that people are probably more familiar with would be a public defender. Uh, he is uh, hired to uh, and appointed by the court to represent people who can't afford their own attorneys. Um, legal aid, it, you know, it, Public defenders, legal aid, uh, stuff like that. The, those terms are all a lot of the way you know interchangeable. But essentially, that's what he is. He's a he's a court appointed attorney who is there to represent people who can't afford their own attorneys. Uh, it's typically a profession that people do because they love it. They're not doing it because they get paid very much. Um, you know. Those of us on the government side don't get paid very much and public defenders get paid less than we do. So, you know, they're they're there because they're true believers for the most part. They're really believing in the system and believe in what they're doing, uh, at least until they get jaded and cynical. Yeah, that's the thing that really kind of stuck with me about this is that, that Peter Weller's character, being someone who did a decade in social work, you meet people that are like, I'm going to carry the torch into this dark corner of the world and try to make some light there. And the same thing happens. Either they move on to a different profession or they become jaded and it, you know, the world warps them. But if you can pass that torch to the next person, you know, then you can keep this sort of chain of good, goodwill towards others going, but it is a, it is a very difficult thing to do. Um, on the street, Peter meets John C. McGinley and Susan, and Smooth Brass Instruments tells us that there's some kind of history or past or future. She's the new assistant DA. What's a DA or assistant DA? So um, I'm glad you you brought up this scene because there's a couple of things I really want to talk about. Here. Yeah. One of the things that just blew my mind when I was rewatching this movie <laughs> um, in like the best way possible. Uh, yeah. So DA is district attorney. That is basically an elected official whose job it is. They are a city or county's um, top prosecutor. And, and their job is to prosecute all the crimes. You know, people get arrested and then they go to court. Well, you know, once you're arrested, the cops are out of the picture. Mm -hmm. it, goes, it goes to the lawyers at that point. And, uh, and so their job is to prosecute all the crimes. Now, obviously, one DA couldn't prosecute all the crimes, even in a small city, right? Small town. Okay. So they have what are called either assistant or deputy DAs. Uh, so that's where the term, you'll hear it on a lot of TV shows, ADA. That means assistant district attorney. That is somebody that works under the DA 
typically they're what we call line prosecutors. They're the ones that are actually trying the cases, plea bargaining, doing all of that stuff because the DA is really a political figurehead. They, Mm. they, they're, they're a politician. They're not involved in the day-to-day stuff. They're not showing up in court every day. It's all the ADAs that do that. So Susan isn't both Susan and John C. McGinley's character are ADAs. Um, But what I love, so by and large, I hate legal movies. I really, really sure. It's what you do, right? And, and, and I really hate how many of them engage in what I call critical, like critically lazy research failures. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, I, I understand that things have to be done for narrative purposes. Like the fact that cases for murder will go to trial in like three days when the reality is it's three to four years usually, but nobody wants to watch a movie where there's three to four years of nothing going on. You know, motion work isn't exciting cinema. Um, And so I get that, but then there's stuff where they just get it so wrong that you look and go, if you just picked up the phone and called a lawyer, right. to fix that problem for you. And people like me wouldn't want to bludgeon their eyes out. Um, This movie, it's a thing that I was thinking as I was watching this. I'm rambling a little bit. I apologize. Don't hesitate to cut me off. But no, please. Is the difference between authenticity and realism. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a movie, as we'll get into, that is not realistic. But the legal stuff is incredibly authentic. The way that Peter Weller and John C. Mulginley sit down with this stack of folders and McGinley already has them divided up into stacks. And he's like, uh, I'm going to give you what you want on this. These we're going to fight on these, you know, and, and Peter Weller takes the stacks and he changes them around a little bit. I have had hundreds of mornings exactly like that in my yeah. career. I mean, that that I was absolutely blown away at how, re- like, again, I don't want to use the word real, but authentic that yeah. So the way prosecutors and defense attorneys interact and, and the banter and the fact that we're not enemies, uh, we're all just trying to do our job. And so we'll fight it out in court if we need to, but we're going to meet the morning before and have coffee together and talk about these cases. And because at the end of the day, all we want to do is try and do what's right and do our job the best we can. And the reality is close cases because we're all overworked. And so I was... I just sat bolt upright <laughs> rewatching this. Yeah. How great that was. Um, and then Susan comes up and obviously it changes and we go into different things. But that little segment with the two of them, I really have never seen that in very many movies. Something that felt that like, ah, oh, I've been there. I know that feeling. Um, yeah, it's, so it's, a, it's a really interesting um, moment. And I'm glad you fleshed it out because from like the social work thing, we would, I mean, you talk about realism in movies where every court goes, every case goes to court. And it's like, we've seen so much stuff just end in a hallway, you know, and just like, like, that's it. There's no swelling music and argument that's, that woos the, there's, there's, it, there's no one else. It's just two people. And then they just are like, so this is how it resolves. And you're just like, that's it. That's the whole, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, most cases are done before you even set foot in the courtroom. On. Yeah. No, you're, you meet in a conference room or a hallway and you go, Hey, I'm willing to give you this. And they go, well, you've got this, this, and this problem with your case. So how about you give me this? And you either say, yeah, that works for me or no, it doesn't. And if it works for you, you're done. I mean, that's, it's not 
pretty. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of problems. I'm going to try and avoid, you know, going too deep into the legal system on this, sure, but sure. obviously you know, there's a lot of problems with our legal system, but it is what it is. And it's so rarely portrayed accurately mm. in movies and TV shows that I, I never in a million years would have thought friggin' shakedown <laughs> would, right. have, would have nailed it. It also, I think is a great example of like how Glickenhaus just keeps this thing trucking forward. Like he gives you so much in this brief little scene with the three of them. And then we're just like on to the next thing. Peter goes to jail. We get a cop asking inmates if they want a condom. And then he meets with the guy who shot the cop. Like, it's just like, boom, next scene. Morning, Richie. Next, we get Sam Elliott sleeping in a theater with a beer and watching The Soldier, which was another Glickenhouse joint, which is awesome. Uh, he looks to be living in the theater and Peter meets him in the bathroom and says, I'm white and can't fight. Uh, this <laughs> I, I, That line just absolutely killed me. It's so good. Because <laughs> he surprises him a little bit in the bathroom. And so Sam Elliott's like ready to draw on him. And Peter Weller's just, and Peter Weller's so like, charming in a snarky mm -hmm. way all the time anyway and so when he's like i'm white can't fight i was just oh i was dying it was so great it's so good and i mean in any other movie this would be like richard lewis being like a super weak lawyer character but we get peter weller who's just straight up cool and uh and the in th the bathroom is the bathroom in the lyric theater all that graffiti is real all the dicks and balls and everything was all just they just shot in that bathroom and Glickenhaus really seems like he he's glad I think that he captured the gritty New York that doesn't exist anymore he definitely had memories of these theaters in this area from his youth and uh the commentary on the blu-ray is fantastically passionate about that so uh if you want to see New York how it existed before Disney um watch Shakedown for sure uh, they make small talk and Sam says, do I smell another shakedown? So if you're playing at home, take a shot because the name of the movie's in the movie. I love it. Uh, the Soldier and the Exterminator, both Glickenhouse joints posters are in the theater, uh, which opened at the Lyric and it was so popular, it ran 24 hours in two theaters, which is pretty amazing for the Exterminator. Uh, Peter asks Sam what a blue jeans cop is and Sam lays it out while Peter buys him a hot dog. And should we technically take another shot because the other title is also in the movie. So is this oh, that's right. a two shot movie? You're right. <laughs> this is a, this is a two shot or a boilermaker as we'll get to it. Uh, Peter buys him a hot dog. And, and if you watch this, watch the background of this scene, because they have a camera hidden as best they can. Remember this is, 88. So it's still a very large beast of a camera. And they're just filming Peter Weller and Sam Elliott eat a hot dog. And in the background, you can, I mean, watch them cut around people because you see at least three or four people like look at the camera and realize who these actors are. And they just like, they're just like, it's, it's masterclass. It's fantastic. Um, outside, you also see the hidden and nightmare on Elm street three on marquees. I just love seeing all these other films and the fact that they were playing at this time. 
Sam tells Peter not to fuck with them. And Peter says, I just want to dance, which I think is a very lovely way of talking. There's also how Glickenhaus wrote this. There's this sort of jazz sort of um, uh, film noir aspect almost to some of the lines. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, There's a great piece coming up later. Peter goes to question the dead cop's wife and look for hidden money. So when you investigate people's homes and look for hidden money, how do you go about that? So, <laughs> luckily, I don't do the investigation. Oh, I see. <laughs> I just signed the warrant. Ah, this is movie it. magic. Then. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, no, there is definitely some things. As much as I was praising the authenticity, that's why it was very important to distinguish authenticity from realism. Sure. Because there are a lot of things, as we will get into, that Peter Weller does in this that would not only get you what hard <laughs> but arrested and uh and you know and all sorts of stuff like that but he still sounds very much like a defense attorney while he's doing all of this stuff and so it still rings authentic even though it's you know ridiculous i mean this movie is ridiculous i don't want people thinking i'm saying this is like inherit the wind or some other you know like sure pinnacle of of legal realism in a movie it's ridiculous but it feels right to me. right i love it i love that uh i also love just how passionate peter weller is about all of this and while we don't figure out sort of what got him his start in law we also don't know what got you your start so where did you begin your sort of pathway with being a lawyer um i blame tom cruise uh, oh okay yeah. Really, um, it was uh, I blame two people. I blame Tom Cruise and Jimmy Stewart. I uh, in high school, uh, I was uh, I was always not, you know, I'm not the most. I know it's going to blow your mind looking at me, but I wasn't the most athletic kid. Um, and I really didn't have a knack for math or science, but I could talk a room like I could just stand up and control a room and I could argue and I could debate and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so people always said, you know, like I wanted to do something with like film criticism, but even in the early nineties, I knew journalism was kind of on its way out. Um, Or at least if not on its way out, you would have to starve for years to, you know, make anything of yourself. Um, And so that didn't really feel like a realistic option. Right about the same time, A Few Good Men came out, and I saw Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And those two things, I was like, well, law school it is. So I did my undergrad with geared towards going to law school, went to law school, and uh, and actually honestly got so burned out after law school that I wanted nothing to do with the law. I actually took about three, it was about three or four years after I graduated before I got my first, like, real legal job. And, uh, because I was just, I was burned out and it just, it, like most jobs, it wasn't what you thought, you know, it wasn't what the movies told you. It was a whole lot less fun and a whole lot less, a a whole lot less noble, (laughs) I guess is the best way to put it. Um, cause I actually went to law school wanting to be a defense attorney. And, uh, unfortunately I went to a very expensive law school that was a utter mistake on my part because student loans just kind of preclude yeah. that from happening. Um, and I also sort of had the realization, uh, that, that, 
Adam Goldberg's character in Dazed and Confused has when he says, I don't know if you remember, but he's got a line where they're in the back of the car and he says, you know how I, I was talking after graduation, I'm going to go to law school, be an ACLU lawyer, help all the helpless, all that sort of stuff. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, it turns out I hate the people I'd be helping. And that, <laughs> that line, which is, it's strong. I don't feel that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get working it. Working as a defense attorney for a while. So I've done both sides of the fence. Um, uh, but I just, it took a while for me to get anything remotely resembling a passion for it. And I'm not even sure that I would say I have a passion for it. I'm just, it's, kind of my only skill uh, like podcasting and the law are the only things I'm actually good at so I don't really have any other options in life so here I am <laughs> yeah it's a good thing you didn't see like a Top Gun and a different Jimmy Stewart film at the same time <laughs> yeah strategic air command that was right. his, that was his big Top Gun well you know and it's actually funny I did when I was a kid because my Whoops, sorry, I bumped my mic. My no dad was a civilian employee for the Air Force. When I was a kid. I really wanted to be a fighter pilot, uh, but I was born basically with terrible eyesight. So luckily, that was never, like, that was a childhood dream, but it was never actually an option for me. So I never gave it much thought because you have to have perfect vision to be a pilot. Oh, well, law seems safer. There's less lifting off and landing you know lifting off landing crashing <laughs> yeah There's, that kind of very, stuff we very rarely crash right. that's one thing that we can say we don't we don't crash a lot that's good uh cut to three cops and an informant in a car and they say some problematic things in that scene next some kids are entering wonderland a high-tech nightclub and a lady wants more crack she gets in to see the boss antonio vargas who's still going strong with five films films coming out this year um that's amazing uh, Sam meets up with some dirtbag cops and they rig a crazy doorbuster with a grenade and they're hitting the nightclub. Uh, Sam takes the boss in while the others hang back to quotes, air quotes, book the evidence, air quotes. Uh, meanwhile, Peter breaks into the dead cop's garage and instantly turns the light on to discover a porch. Porsche, not a porch. That would be weird. Uh, discovers a Porsche. How admissible would that be in court? Not at all, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, there are... There are rules that basically say illegally acquired evidence, if it's not by an actor uh, for the state, can actually still be admissible. Um, you know, so if if you break into somebody's house and get some evidence and turn it into the cops, that that's not actually fatal to its admissibility because you were a private citizen. Um, it it might we might still not want to use it, mm. uh, but it's not necessarily fatal to its admission where Peter Weller is actually the defense attorney. He's done kind of one of the worst things you can do as a lawyer, which is make yourself a witness in your own case, uh. because the only way that Porsche would be admissible would be for him to be placed under oath as a witness and testify uh. how he found the Porsche. So he actually, in the real world, wouldn't be helping his client at all by doing this because he's not going to be able to represent his client anymore. And again, the whole getting arrested and disbarred and all of that sort of stuff. It's just going to go, I'm, I'm not going to add that every, we're just going to put that asterisk by everything he does in this movie. Right. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it just, it would make a mess. Uh, there's really no way I see that that's realistically coming in. I mean, I guess you could, I can kind of, if I put my thinking cap on, think up a couple of ways, but it's generally bad form to 
investigate your own cases as an attorney. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's why defense attorneys have private investigators. That's why we have police, because that way neither of us turns ourselves into a witness in our own case. Okay. Um, so it's 1988. We have Peter Weller. We have Sam Elliott. Peter Weller has a private investigator. Who are you going to cast as that to make this a trio? 1988. 1988. So based on what I know about a lot, I got it. Brian Danahy. Oh, genius. Perfect. Yeah. That's great. That's right around FX, I think. That's yep. that's that's sweet Dennehy spot right there. Yeah, that it's prime Dennehy, and he is actually looks very much like what most real world private investigators <laughs> look like. Um, and and he'd be perfect. And it, and he and Elliot could just have like a gruff off. Oh yeah, you know, like just burr, 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 and burr, 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 you know, and it would be awesome. That that's and there'd be a part where Brian Dennehy finds a guy, but the guy like sprints away, and he tells Sam Elliott he's got to go get him because he's yep. more spry. 100 percent okay 100 i i would actually have paid a lot of money to watch <laughs> yeah, that. me too i would love that uh in the courtroom the judge paul bartell says one million for bail and the boss guy he's got that in a suitcase so he's walking free right then i guess they just put that money in a, a vault or something in the courtroom i don't know how it works exactly uh the dead's Dead cop's wife calls us. You put it in the bank like anybody else. Oh, okay. Courts have trust accounts. It just goes into the bank. Oh, gotcha. Uh, the dead cop's wife calls the precinct because she thinks someone saw his car. And Sam checks on evidence, and we're pretty sure everyone's dirty. Peter goes to see Sam at the bar and orders double what Sam's having. So the bartender says, you want a quadruple boiler maker? <laughs> which sounds disgusting. Uh, Sam tells a romantic story about a dead dog, which is a true story that Glickenhouse heard once. Uh, the scene was the day that Gluckenhaus told his Miles Davis story, which is on the Blu-ray. So again, pick up this Blu-ray and listen, even if it's just for the Miles Davis story, which is a separate track on the Blu-ray. It's an incredible story. It, it is. It is. I didn't get to listen to all of it, but oh it is. Oh, my God. The other thing I love about that scene is, again, just a, one of the other ways that Peter Weller is just so cool in this. Because yeah. the bartender says, you mean you want a quadruple boilermaker? And Weller goes, yeah, and a Pepsi. Yeah. <laughs> so great. <laughs> it's so good. On Peter's way home, he's surrounded by cops. Uh, they have their batons. It's dark. They circle around him and they leave. They're threatening Peter for questioning their authority. Uh, Sam goes and questions the valet from the outside the crematorium. Uh, would this hold up in court? Sam's little tete-a-tete with the valet guy. Assuming the valet guy um, played by uh, the great Harold Perrineau and yeah. from Matrix movies and Romeo and Juliet. Um, well, if the valet tells the truth... Yeah, it's probably still going to hold up because who are you going to believe, a drug-dealing valet or a decorated undercover cop? Um, so I guess the question, Dirk, is is what mm. world are we living in? Are we living in the, the actual letter of the law? No, it's not admissible. You don't get to threaten to beat people up and put guns in their face. Right. Are we living in the real world? Shakedown world. Shakedown world, it absolutely comes <laughs> yes. in. Uh, you know, in our world, unfortunately, I... You know, I don't want to talk too much about the real world because I can't get into too many details about of my course. Job, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, lest people uh, with uh, the people above me hear this and uh, don't like what I have to say. But, um, uh, yeah, it, I mean, this kind of stuff and, you know, not to this overt thing, but, right. but 
obviously stuff comes in like that. Um, and I mean, there are limits or there are wider latitudes than people think that cops can do. Like cops can 100% straight up lie to you. Like that, that, that has been upheld repeatedly by courts. They are, yeah, they are under no obligation to tell you the truth. Um, They can straight up lie to you about all sorts of stuff. They can tell you they have evidence that they don't have. Uh, What they can't do is they can't coerce you. So they can't threaten you um, with anything that they can't actually back up. So like if they say, if they know they've got probable cause to get a warrant and they say, let us in, or we're just going to go get a warrant and kick your door down. Um, and you let them in, that's fine. They can threaten you with that because they know they can get a warrant. If they know they've got nothing else, they can't threaten you, but they can lie to you. They can say, look, we know you've got the drugs in there. Just let us in. Let us take a look at it. You know what? We'll, We'll, we'll probably won't even do anything. We'll just make you flush it. We just want to make sure that you're not dealing out of here. So mm-hmm. just let us in. Totally fine. Uh, and the reason for that is, frankly, because you have a fourth, fifth, and sixth amendment right to not talk to them and not let them in your house. And right. We said, if you're dumb enough to fall for it and waive your constitutional rights, that's kind of on you. Um, sure. So, yeah. you know, it wouldn't work for me, the, uh, the whole good cop, bad cop thing unless they just started with good cop like if they just if i answered the door of my drug dealing home and they were like dirk and i said yes and they're like have you lost weight i'd be like what dude i have thank you for noticing and they're like do you have a full-length mirror and i'd be like let's go see it and then they're in my house that's all it would take really that's all it takes once they're in there once you see that's the thing they can flatter you too they can right It would work every time. Any cops listening, if you see me on the street, keep the comment compliments coming, you know, Uh, uh, while you're at it, five star review, please. uh, Every review hopes helps. And yeah, uh, I love I love that. Uh, Seems like Sam could use a break. And frankly, so could we. So we'll be right back after this. Oh, hey. I was just deciding what to make for dinner tomorrow. How does maitake tacos with a porcini mushroom dipping broth sound? Or savory green chili corn cakes with an arugula salad? Well, how about roasted root vegetables with a habanero bernays sauce, hmm? Nah, I think I might go with a baked gnocchi and a carrot top pesto, but no matter which I choose, these and much more can be found at marshallshotsauce.com. That's right, the same place you'll find sauces like smoked habanero barbecue, serrano ginger lemongrass, red chili lime, and habanero carrot curry, to name a few, you will also find many creative delicious recipes on how you can cook with each sauce. And every recipe is made with minimal ingredients and simple techniques written by Sarah Marshall, who also makes and bottles each bottle of Marshall's hot sauce. Plus. She just launched a new line of spice blends. The barbecue rub, by the way, is amazing, and the taco seasoning will melt off your face. Plus, her new edition of her cookbook, Canning Guide Preservation Pantry, is out now. Look, if you want to make your own awesome hot sauce and pickles and more, pick up Preservation Pantry. So head on over to Marshall's Hot Sauce, that's Marshall's, H-A-U-T-E, sauce.com, and at checkout, enter VHS Podcast for 20% off. That's right, 20% off just by entering VHUS Podcast, one word, at checkout. Okay, back to the show. And 
and we're back. And Stevie, the informant, goes into a seedy sex club motel and the guy working the front desk played the same role in Big the same year. That's right. You can see him in Big as well as Shakedown playing the guy at the front of a hotel in or motel in New York. Um, the doorman from the crematorium comes in to see Stevie in his honeymoon suite and Stevie is shocked. And a moment later, he's shocked to death. Terrible, terrible way for Stevie to die. And Sam and Peter head up and find Stevie cooked. Cops stop the doorman, but he's super cool and shoots knives out of his sleeves and an Uzi pops out of his chest. Yes, an Uzi. If you have not seen this movie by this point in the podcast, pause the podcast, go see Shakedown and come back to this because when this happens, it's amazing. Sam Elliott then climbs down the front of a building, uh, lands on top of a bus, steals a motorcycle. Peter hops on and they set off chase. It's a great chase, which ends with a huge explosion and scream. Uh, Jail. Would you mind please hitting us with a little taste of that scream? And that scream means it's time to play a game. Are you ready, Mike? Because we're going to play legal term or something Dirk just made up. Okay, let's do it. All right. There are five. Number one. And I might mispronounce some. Demurrer. Legal term. You're correct. A formal response to a complaint filed in a lawsuit pleading for dismissal and saying, in effect, see, this is right where my brain, not understanding the language, it's like the little guy in my brain just goes, nope, and just walks down to my stomach to see what's going on down there. Uh, what does this mean? What's a demurrer? So it's it's an old term. Um, we don't use it a ton anymore uh, unless if you're in some East Coast states, they probably still use it. Um, what we typically do uh, now is is call it like a motion for summary judgment. And what we're essentially saying is if you sue me and your lawsuit is baseless um, mm. and you have no hope of winning at trial, I can file a motion for demur or summary judgment and basically say you have failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted or have failed to state a claim in such a way that you have any reasonable likelihood of success at trial. And if the court agrees with that, they just dismiss the case right there. We don't go to trial. We don't okay. pass, We don't collect 200 bucks. Um, it's not something we see in criminal law. It's a civil law. It's a term in civil law. Uh, it's one of those terms that that uh, criminal and civil law have their own separate laws. But um, that's basically what it boils down to. Okay. Number two, P-U. Native. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're just emphasizing <laughs> You or if you're trying to say punitive. <laughs> no, no, I was saying it the way I meant. It's a it's a made up term for people who smell like patchouli. I made that up. Uh, number three, wobbler. Wobbler. I'm going to say that that is a made up term. OK, so this is what happens sometimes when we get into weird regional things or things I found on the Internet. So this is what they say a wobbler is. They say it's a real thing. They refer to it as a felony wobbler. A wobbler is a crime that can be classified as either a felony or a misdemeanor. In some states, even if an offender is charged with a felony in a wobbler case, the judge may have authority to reduce the conviction or misdemeanor. I've never heard that before. That is, <laughs> I, that is, that which, weird? Uh, yeah, I, that's got to be a regional thing, right? Um, because I've never heard that before. And, and typically, at least in my state, the judge doesn't. I, I, 
I mean, we have things that are called lesser included offenses. That sounds way more intelligent than Wobbler. <laughs> yeah, and you can be found guilty of a lesser included. So, like, for instance, um, a lot of crimes are based on, like, financial crimes are based on dollar amount. And so it's a second-degree felony if you've stolen more than $5,000. Well, by definition, that means third-degree felonies, Class A misdemeanors, Class B misdemeanor thefts are all lesser included because if we can prove you stole $5,000, we've proven you've stolen and less than that, right? Mm. And so in those certain circumstances, the judge or the jury can find you guilty. Like maybe they find you guilty of theft. That's not in dispute. But they think that the state was only able to prove that you stole $2,500. They can find you guilty of a third degree felony instead of just having to find you not guilty of the second. Mm. Uh, because once they find you not guilty, you can't be charged again. Um and so that's kind of why the lesser included fit, because if it was a really strict rule, uh, you'd, you know, you'd end up proving that somebody committed a crime. But because of one component of it, they'd be found not guilty. So that's kind of what I think a wob what a wobbler is. But yeah. I have to admit, that is not a term I'd ever heard before. It sounds like something that. Um, uh, what's the. The, oh, geez, I just want to blank on this actor's name. The guy that was a uh, Mark Wahlberg. OK, it's it sounds like what Mark Wahlberg would say if he was a lawyer in a movie in like the 90s. And he was like just coming out of law school and they're explaining him a case. And he'd be like, oh, we got a wobbler. It's hey, a wobbler. Bro. Hey, hey, bro. I think this case is a wobbler. This case is a wobbler. Yeah, it's I think that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, number four, mens rea. Yes, that is a legal term. That's right. Latin for a guilty mind. Mens rea is used to describe a culpable state of mind, the criminal intent of the individual while committing a criminal act. That seem accurate? That is 100% accurate. All right. And the last one, diarrhea. <laughs> I'm going to say made up. Damn it. I really thought I'd keep a straight you face on that one. Yeah, well, you did get me on Wobbler, so like, oh. you got me on one of them. Okay, yeah. <laughs> diarrhea is when a person is guilty of eating a stromboli past its due date. Diarrhea. <laughs> okay, well, back in the film, uh, the head mullet cop has a back and forth with Sam and says, you planning on taking down an army? And he says, I don't know yet, which is just like classic Sam. Sam's cleaning a Beretta Eagle pistol in this scene, which is the first on-screen appearance of this pistol in a motion picture, which is pretty amazing. Uh, Gail harshes everyone's mellow with her feelings on drug dealers. And next we get Peter Weller in court, and he is enigmatic when he's in these court scenes. Uh, what about you as a lawyer? How fun was it watching Peter Weller in, in a court? He's good. Um, so many of these scenes in, in movies are, are really terrible because they're what people who think lawyers sound like in court, like they, they write that and not what we actually sound like. There is a lot of this that is in this movie that is what we actually sound like. Um, I think his opening statement that he gives to the jury is pretty terrific. I mean, wow. it's pretty realistic. It's, it's the kind of opening statement I would expect to hear a defense attorney try and give, um, you know, there's some things we'll get to him. I'm sure when he's examining witnesses where it goes way out of, okay. way out of control. Um, but I actually was sitting there during his opening and I'm like, yeah, I 
you know, one of the things they do a lot in, in, in openings and closings and stuff is they just, they say things that would be in no way, shape or form be admissible, but this is solid. It's good. That's awesome. Yeah. I love, uh, like we're talking about just the idea that there was research and something involved because movies are a fantastical, often a fantastical telling of a story and not meant to be a real realistic version of how our lives normally are. Cause we already have that and we want an escape, but, uh, but I love that in something this fantastical, there's these parts where you, as someone who works in this profession, are like, I mean, this is pretty solid. Like, it's, you yeah. know. Glickenhaus clearly knows lawyers. I mean, and trial lawyers, like legal aid and prosecutors. There's no question he knows them because there's there's stuff he gets right that you just wouldn't yeah, get. details. Yeah. Yeah. After the court, they have a back and forth and Peter lays out the history and it's like a film noir. It's just written really amazing. The drug boss arrives at a car race and it's Harlem Shuffle versus the Cracker and the Cracker explodes and the cops and drug boss meet right next to the smoking car. It's one of those things that like there's a lot of amazing things that happen in this movie. But the fact that they choose to have a conversation next to something that had just exploded is like really choice. Uh, They mentioned that they're going to kill Sam and Peter also at this point. Speaking of Peter, he's in bed with Susan. But what about Gail and her father and offering him the job at the law firm? Ah, back in the courtroom. Objection. Conclusion. Sustained. I have no idea what's happening. What do these things mean? So think of think of trial kind of like a sporting event, right? You got sides. They're going to battle. Every sport has to have a referee. That's the judge. Every sport has to have a set of rules. And that's the rules of evidence. Those are the things that basically tell us how we're going to play this game that we do. And when you violate them, just like you do in any sport, ref blows a whistle, umpire, you know, calls you out, uh, referee in a football game, throws a flag, whatever it may be. Well, the way we do it, the whistle in court is we are considered to have to police ourselves. Uh, And so when one side does something that is in violation of the rules, the other side blows a whistle by saying objection. And then you follow it up by stating the grounds of the objection. It doesn't have to be very detailed. So it's things like conclusion, um, hearsay. That's one that gets, I'm not even going to bog us ever down uh, (laughs) with the ways that what hearsay is, first of all, and the ways that not only movies, but just people in everyday speak Mm. hearsay wrong. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. I'm already feeling like the (laughs) thing, but you know, or leading or badgering or, or something like that. And so then when the, when you blow that whistle, um, the other side has a chance to basically say, Hey, what are you talking about? I didn't touch him. And the ref, AKA the judge Uh. makes a ruling. And if the person raising the objection, the judge thinks they're right, then they say the objection is sustained. And if they think they're wrong, then they say the objection is overruled. Okay. That makes sense. What is conclusion though? Does that mean they've drawn their own conclusion and this isn't? Conclusion basically means you're, you're asking a question that calls for the witness to make a conclusion that is ultimately for the jury to decide mm. you're asking the witness to make a conclusory statement. So for instance, if I'm, if I'm, uh, questioning a witness, say whatever, an eyewitness, I can say things like, did you see him with the gun? Yes. Did you see him pull the trigger? Yes. Uh, or even better, 
no, I didn't see him pull the trigger, but you saw him with the gun. Yes. You saw him flee the scene. Yes. So did Joe Smith, did Joe chill kill Thomas Wayne? There's a good example. Okay. Okay. That last question, that's conclusion. That's, that is asking a question that the witness isn't competent or qualified to answer and is really stepping on the jury's the person, the, the the group that decides if Joe Chill killed Thomas Wayne, not the witness. Gotcha. Uh, it's not actually, it's kind it was kind of weird because it's not actually an objection that gets used very much. Mm. Um, but it worked in the scene because ultimately what really mattered wasn't even the, the objections. It was the banter between Susan and Roland, you know, going back and forth on this and showing how competent both of them are, but while also, you know, sort of generating that sexual tension yeah. uh, between them, um, you know, and, and I liked the fact that she objected some of the time and she won and then she lost, you know, sometimes the judge overruled her. And so I thought it was kind of a fun little back and forth. Uh, again, not the worst I've ever seen in a movie for sure. Right. And most of what I know of lawyers and I don't know much about sports, but I think I followed your, your example pretty well. Uh, most of what I know of lawyers and courts comes from cartoons. So is it a limit to how many times a cartoon rooster can say, I say, I say, I say, or is that just, you can just go with that as long as, the only limit, the only limit to how many times you can say, I say, I say, I say, I say, I say, is you're going to eventually lose the jury because it's hard to move on. And you know what? You might actually get an objection that wouldn't be a real objection. But yeah. sometimes we object to stuff to where, like, I've sometimes raised objections that aren't actually grounded in the rules of evidence just to say, can we just move the fuck yeah. on? <laughs> I, I wish you could do that in everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. That would be amazing. Like when someone's pay, like standing in front of you at the grocery store and then they get rung up and the person's like, it's $99. And they're like, let me get my checkbook out. You should be like, objection. <laughs> like this person knew this outcome was coming and they're just now choosing to get the, yeah. That's, yeah. One uh, that I use fairly frequently when an opposing attorney is asking a really long winded question and, and what they're really doing is testifying. Uh -huh. And the proper objection is counselors testifying. I think it's a lot more fun and more effective to get up and say, objection, your honor. Is there a question here at any point? Nice. Um, because it just kind of, again, so much of what we do is about showing off demonstrating for the jury that we are in command of this situation because mm -hmm. the attorney that the jury likes is more often than not going to be the one that wins mm. regardless. No, I don't want to say regardless of what the evidence says. I will tell you this. I would not look forward to trying a case against Peter Weller. Mm -hmm. um, he's so good in that courtroom. I would really hate trying a case against him. Yeah, I agree. And after they chat and kiss, and then Gail and her dad are there. Sam goes fishing for about three seconds before kicking the crap out of two guys that were watching him and setting chase after a third. Uh, it's one of my favorite moments in the film. As a kid, it's what really stuck with me is this foot chase through a theme park. One, because I loved theme parks. And two, because they actually fight on the roller coaster Cyclone in Coney Island, which is amazing. I mean, Glickenhouse is like a down and dirty, great, grimy awesome action filmmaker dude and the fact that this is really happening and it's not green screened it's just 
I just love it. I miss that kind of dangerous realism in these movies. Yeah, real practical effects here, real explosions, real roller coaster car coming <laughs> off the cyclone. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love what is what do the cops say after it crushes one of the cops? The first one on scene says something like, "We're going to need a bucket or something." Oh, like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know it. it uh, you know, and I get. You know, this is one of the things that I talk a lot about with Scott Adkins, actually, is is you do understand why they don't do these things anymore. They're really dangerous. Oh, yeah. And the amount of stunt people who die now versus the amount that died beforehand is much smaller uh, because you can can do this stuff with CGI. But that's almost why I love these movies is because they are a relic of an era that we're never going to get back again. So it's it's joyous to watch them. Yeah. You know, I I, up. I love the fact that the person is way taller, more muscular and clearly wearing a wig in shots over someone that's just in front of a green screen on a wire and be like, but look, it's this, it's the actor floating around. Like, no, I wanted to see the stunt man who's clearly a stunt man do some kind of thing that's so dangerous. And then it cuts back to the actor. Like I, I prefer that 100% because I'm just like, somebody's skill set is on show there. I love that. There is so much bad, um, stunt doubling and i don't mean bad in a negative way i just mean obvious i guess is a better yeah, term there's obvious. so much obvious stunt doubling in this movie yeah and it is one of those things so back in the 80s when you were seeing these movies all the time they used to drive it used to drive me nuts now i find it kind of quaint yeah you know? i find it like oh that's just a that's just a thing that happens in the you know because again yeah you're not gonna have sam elliott and peter weller riding motorcycles they're major movie stars that's it that's not gonna happen and this yeah. is before you know tom cruise kind of revolutionized stuff by demanding to do his own stunts and so right. now lead actors are expected to do a lot of their own stunt work uh but back in 1988 Almost no actors did their own stunt work. No. And the funnest thing to do is in movies like, I don't know, Tango and Cash or any of these kind of buddy cop movies, in the action sequences, look at the person that's not the focus of the shot. Like, look at the other partner because it is amazing how oftentimes in broad, like right in the middle of the shot is someone that has a mustache that's not that other character that you're just like, oh, because we wouldn't, your, your focus isn't pulled that way. You have to fight against the intention of the filmmaker. But if you go out of your way to do it, you're rewarded often with these great moments. Especially with uh, female characters in yeah. movies because there was a, a lot of, I don't know, uh, Dirk, if you've seen a movie called Stunt Women, The Untold Hollywood Story. No, really great documentary that came out last year oh, about check that the out. history of stunt women. Terrific. But one of the things they always talked about was it was really hard for stunt women to break in because, oh, well, of institute, you know, institutional sexism, sure. sexual sexism. And so what would end up happening instead is they would throw a wig on a dude yeah. and have him take the hits or take the falls. And so if you're seeing a female character in a movie take a stunt, um, do that like take a good close look yeah. at it because there is a real good chance it is going to be some dude and it's like very obviously some dude <laughs> to yeah. the point like yeah even with like a mustache and yeah i won't name which breakdance movies but there's a couple shots in those that are clearly a dude oh my goodness uh Back at Susan's condo, Peter's sleeping like a baby. Uh-oh, Susan and Peter chat, and he says, is this going to be some kind of woman doo-wop? Which I was like, 
this is some sort of jazzy sort of film noir situation. Uh, Peter delivers a great monologue at this point. And back in court, Susan grills the man who sold the Porsche to the cop. How did we get to this point? Was what what happened? I I don't quite know. There's <laughs> a, so weird. <laughs> there's some jumps in this movie. Okay, that's fine. As I said, we're not tying ourselves to the realism situation. I, I just love the adventure of this film. Uh, Peter says that he's going to call his last witness in the defendant, and everyone looks shocked. Is this how it works, or is there some sort of chain where you have to like admit to each other, like I'm going to call this person on this day? And yeah. this. Well, sort of. Um, I have to, as a prosecutor, I have to tell the defense my entire case. Because of the defendant's constitutional rights, they are never required to even put up a defense. They can sit there in silence for the entire trial. That typically isn't going to work out well for them, but they right. can do that. Um, and certainly when it comes to putting the defendant on the stand, um, that's typically a decision that is made at the very end of the trial at the very last minute. Um, because if, if you're feeling good, it's almost never a good idea to put your, your client as a defense attorney, to put your client on the stand. Uh, I, I always have this joke. One phrase that has never been uttered by any defense attorney in history is God, I wish my client had talked more. <laughs> um, you know, and, and so, because the, the thing is, is, if you don't put your client on the stand, then we're dealing with the evidence. If you put your client on the stand, well, then I have a right to cross-examine. Right. And much like I am always worried about when I am trying a case against a really smart defendant, somebody like Peter Weller, and my witness is maybe not great. Maybe my witness is a crack dealer mm -hmm. um, or maybe my witness is you know, prone to anger on the stand. I've had certainly had plenty of cops in my career lose their temper on the stand because they get poked and prodded by a really smart defense attorney. Well, I'm as smart as they are. And so if you put your client in my hands and you let me at him, odds are high, it's not going to go well for him. Your client is not going to come out looking good. Yeah. So you really need to avoid it if possible. In this case, obviously they had to put him on. A cop. Thomas Waits from the Warriors tells Sam Elliott about the boombox and the tape. Peter gets the call and gets the court to just stop its whole everything, which is seems weird. Uh, Gail shows up and claims she's pregnant because this movie moves. Uh, Peter heads to the police station so he can check out the evidence. And then we move right on from that. <laughs> yeah, like, that's that's it. like that's, we just move right on from that. It's so weird. Uh, <laughs> Dick Bocelli is the drummer from the Comets. He's the guy working the front desk in the police station. Um, the cop says that the key broke in the lock. He's got Peter's got to come back tomorrow. So he does what we all do. Comes back at night, scales the side of the building with bolt cutters. <laughs> the police station. Uh, now, as a lawyer, I'm kidding. But uh, the cops catch him and zip time to a chair and play Russian roulette yeah, as do cops just, do. <laughs> just for anybody listening, don't. Don't break into a police station, uh, regardless of how committed to the cause you are. It's a bad idea. It's not good because uh, mullet guy burns the tape, uh, heads down to pull the fire alarm so they can shoot Peter. But Sam arrives and kills two cops, of which there are never any repercussions. <laughs> 
Uh, Peter gets a taxi and then gets chased by the cops in yet another great scene, a uh, great chase scene in this movie that ends at the courthouse stairs. And the cop that wants to shoot Peter Weller is Holt McCallany. I think I'm saying his last name correct from Mindhunter, Fight Club, Creepshow 2 and Aliens 3. He's so young in this. It's He's really baby. He's yeah. a wee little baby. It's so- um- <laughs> I love Holt McCallany. He's one of my favorite, like that guys, right? Like yes. he's classic that guy. And he's amazing all the time. Yep. But he is such a wee little baby. He's so like, young. <laughs> I just saw him in wrath of man. And then I was like, wait, there he is in shakedown. Oh, but we've uh, also got to talk about, uh, Tom Martirosian, if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, as the cab driver. Oh, yeah. It is a it is a stereotypical performance, you know, as it's an 80s movie. It's sure. not like we're expecting this. But he is such a bolt of energy for the, like, two minutes he's in this movie. Yeah, yeah. He's like, you need to get to the courthouse. I'll get you to the courthouse. And there's, like, a dozen cops chasing after Yeah. Him. But I got a lawyer. He needs to get to the courthouse. I'm going to make sure the system works. You know, like yeah. it's, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love movies, especially in the 80s that did this, where it's just like it's a throwaway character. And it becomes like one of your favorite moments in the film, like Fatal Beauty and uh, Burglar did that. And uh, yeah, it's just it's really awesome. Uh, back in court, Peter delivers his closing statement. Uh, is there any limit to how long a closing statement can be? No, uh, but can I back up for a sec? Because we oh, yeah. talk about one other thing, the judge not allowing the tape to come in. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so that is right and wrong because that's the big deal, right? He still has the tape. He gets yep. to the judge. He's got Susan. He's in front of the judge. It's like, this tape says this, but you know, I need to be able to play it. And she says, essentially, the judge says, essentially, what I said earlier, which is you've now made yourself a witness in your own case. Mm. That's totally right. Uh, what I think would happen in this case, and judges are weird, uh, so you can't, I can't say for sure. What I can say for sure should have happened is given this new evidence, given everything that's gone on, the judge should have declared a mistrial, uh, which is where the judge basically says there has been such an egregious rule violation or some other thing that is so big that there's no way the trial can continue. Um, Mm. And so we're going to wipe the slate clean and start over again in three or six months. We're going to do a whole new trial with a whole new jury in three or six months. Um, Judges don't like to do it, but when you've got a defense attorney with like smoke and hot evidence and telling you that he just was almost killed by three corrupt (laughs) cops. Yeah. Um, you're probably going to declare a mistrial or sure. at a minimum, at least be like, yeah, let's take a week you know, <laughs> and this shit out. Not, I'm not going to do this now. Go give your closing argument. Um, which, you know, again, Weller's a pro. He gives a better closing argument than, than I ever would have. It's pretty amazing. Um, there is no limit. The only limit is how much you're willing to test, um, Well, I guess that's not true. One of the things that's hard about like telling people how the law works is every jurisdiction is different. Every jurisdiction has their own rules. Uh, In my jurisdiction where I practice, there is no actual time limit uh, in the law. Some judges will impose their own time limits, but really there's a built-in time limit because how much do you want to test the juror's butts like how much do you want to test their patients because the thing with jurors is they hate you 
Yeah. They, <laughs> they already hate you. They don't want to be there. They're getting paid like 20 bucks a day to be there. Yeah. They fucking hate you. And so the less you say the better because they want to get, they just want to go home. Yeah. You know? Even if they're taking it seriously, which the reality is most jurors do take it seriously, they still just want to go home. They want to be done. Um, so, you know, typically you're going to keep a closing. It obviously depends on how complicated the case is. Yeah. I don't think I've ever given one longer than 20 minutes. Um, and even that was pushing it. Uh, I try and keep it to like, especially as a prosecutor, because I sort of feel like, my job should already be done before closing. Like if I haven't proven my case, nothing I say in closing is really going to make a whole lot of difference. So okay. I don't, I don't typically give very long ones. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Peter and Michael have a back and forth before the jury reaches a verdict. Michael's not guilty. Sam says the cops are headed for the airport. Do you want a driver shoot? Which is one of those lines. It's like, there it is. Like, that's what we want. Give us this. And they set off to chase down an airplane in the dead cop's Porsche. <laughs> How they got that? I don't I don't know, but they have it. Uh, Sam climbs up on an airplane and shoots it multiple times, causing it to land and explode. Next at dinner, Gail's parents at the house, uh, she confesses that she isn't pregnant. And so Peter says, I know this is bad timing, but boom, he's back in prison working cases. And there's the condom cop again. And boom, end credits. Awesome tunes. And that's the end of Shakedown. Uh, final thoughts. This movie rules. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I love, I, you know, in 2021, I think Gail's portrayal is really bad. Yeah. Um, but that being said, within the confines of that movie, she sucks. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's the other thing that she doesn't just tell her family that she tells her family that she lost the baby, but she tells Roland, Peter Weller, that right. she wasn't pregnant to begin with. She was just so afraid of losing him. So, you know, it, which is convenient because it gives him the easy out, even though he's been having an affair uh, the whole time, <laughs> the whole movie um, with no repercussions. <laughs> Plus, also, the hand grenade that Sam Elliott throws into the airplane is the longest timered hand. Like, he throws it in, drops down from the landing gear. This yeah. plane has time to land before it blows up. Like, that would not be a very effective hand grenade. That's true. Uh, but uh, those are nitpicks. This movie rules. It's so yeah. much fun. Yeah, I think it gives you what you want. I love that Glickenhaus got to shoot all of this gritty New York that he loved before it was gone. Uh, I, I just, I think it's fantastic as again, as I said, the bonus features on this Blu-ray are really, really great. So definitely check them out. I, I would love to see something new from Glickenhaus. He sounds like he's down to shoot something else. I don't know what two people you'd pair. I know one of them maybe, but, uh, that you would put in a Glickenhaus production, perhaps Mr. Scott Adkins. Yeah, that would be fun. That would be, that who would, would be you, who would you put opposite him? Uh, if you got your druthers, anyone you wanted from from action that's still alive, Dolph Lundgren. They've teamed up before, yes. but I'd like to see them in Glickenhaus's hands. Yeah, that would be great. Something gritty, grimy. I, I would absolutely love that. But that brings us to final thoughts. These are questions that are just about you. Uh, what do you like about being a lawyer? Uh, cliched as it is, I like 
trying to make a difference. Mm. Um, I don't always get to, um, in fact, rarely do I, but, um, especially when I was working domestic violence cases, Mm. um, those were hard. Uh, there were a lot of bad days, but you didn't need very many good days to make it worth it. Um, so, you know, it's cliched, but it is what it is. It's it's the reason I'm still able to do it is because um, there are people out there who, you know, and that's why I've, I've always really gotten along great with defense attorneys. My best, one of my best friends was my public defender. So like that John C. McGinley, Peter Weller scene, that was yeah. us. And we are still best friends. We still... Every time I hit the mic, uh, <laughs> but uh, we uh, we still go to the bar every other Friday, get drinks, unwind, even though we're we're not working together anymore. I love that Be- because we're all just we all understand that people there are people out there who need a voice, and what we're really trying to do is give it to them. I know, given it's 2021, a lot of people listening to that, given everything that's gone on sure. with. BLM and all of that stuff. A lot of people are going to be rolling their eyes at that. I can't speak for other people in my profession. I can only speak for me. And for me, that's what I try and do is give people a voice who don't have one. That's awesome. And what is a good day like for you? Good day is I actually get to resolve a case in such a way that everybody feels like they got justice. Uh, That the, the, and those, unfortunately don't happen very often, but a good day is a day where I feel like, and it's not even so much that everybody got justice. It's more that I feel like I fixed a problem. Um, you know, that I, that I'm never going to see this defendant again, that a victim feels like they were represented and they were satisfied. Uh, and that I'm never going to actually see this defendant again. Uh, you know, that's that's not unreasonable because most people don't aren't repeat offenders. Um, yeah. But uh, but still, most people who aren't repeat offenders, I don't actually really see because they usually are the ones that go in and just plead guilty. You know, and uh, which is always kind of this weird thing. But a good day is a day where it's that where I I can feel like I protected somebody or I helped somebody get justice, but I also I'm not a big punishment guy. I'm much more about rehabilitation and mm-hmm. restorative justice stuff, uh, much to the chagrin of a lot of my coworkers and colleagues. Um, again, hoping they never listen to this. Uh, I, uh, so it's for me, it's never really about punishment. It's about, am I making a victim feel whole? And if I can do that, then that's a good day. That's what a good day feels like. And I hate to ask it, but what's a bad day like? I will tell you a specific story. <laughs> okay. I won't name any names, but I will tell you a specific story. Uh, I did a jury trial on, this is one of the worst days of my career. Um, I did a jury trial. It was a domestic violence case. I had a willing victim because in a lot of DD cases, you don't have willing victims. They, they don't want to testify. I had a willing victim. She was great on the stand. Uh, very credible, very believable. The defendant did testify. Yeah. Uh, good example of why you shouldn't. I was able to get him to admit that he had been convicted of aggravated assault and that he had a history of violence and that he had anger management issues. Um, 
pretty close in the DV world to a slam dunk. I lost. Uh, I <sighs> bad jury. Um, there was a guy on the jury who just really didn't believe victims and he bullied everybody else on the jury. And then I had to spend an hour telling this victim who literally laid it all out there. Why four strangers, uh, basically called her a liar. Uh, that's a bad day. Um, should have leaded with bad day and then ended with good day. <laughs> the reality is, 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 you know, those, those aren't, you want to know what a real normal bad day looks like. A real normal bad day is just eight hours of me running around like a chicken with my head cut off because I'm trying to handle 150 cases. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, that's what a real bad day looks like for the most part is, is the, 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 the normal bad day is just that you're overworked or you get a ruling that doesn't go your way or you lose a, you know, if you're doing misdemeanors, you lose a traffic ticket, you know, mm. I mean, there's little things like that, but that case, that day, that is going to stay with me. Yeah. Right, until right. that that was that trial was 10 years ago and that case is still going to stay with me until the oh, day god yeah wow. well any advice you have for someone who wants to become a lawyer don't do it <laughs> um, do not do it the rate of people who are unhappy as lawyers we have the second highest rate of substance abuse of any white collar profession um we are mostly crippled under student loan debt. If you are going to do it, if I can't talk you out of it, uh, make sure you go to a school that is something that you can easily afford so that you are not taking yeah. on stay in state and go to a state school. Don't go to a private school just because it's higher ranked on us news and world report because those rankings are crap. Anyway, uh, stay and go. I went to one, you know, the school that I went to, and it was great. I got a great education, but I racked up, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And right. it was, you know, a top 20 ranked school. And literally I have never been asked in my profession where I went to school. Nobody gives a, like people ask casually, Sure, but it is a profession especially if you don't want to work at one of the big like New York law firms, if you want to do like public interest law or prosecution or defense work or, you know, social work kind of law, stuff like that. Um, nobody gives a crap. They care where you, they care what you do when you show up on day one and can you hustle and do your job and do all of that stuff. So don't, blow your wad going to an expensive law school, go to one that you can afford because that's just going to afford you options to live where you want to live, do what you want to do for a living. And you're not going to be under that debt load. But the reality is my advice is don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tiring, stressful way to make a living. Well, there you go. And on that note, it brings us to our final question. And it's my favorite question. Mike, what are your dreams like? Um, kind of, I guess to go like full time with this sort of podcasting. Oh no. I mean, when you sleep. Oh, okay. My <laughs> actual, well, that's good. Cause I was like, damn Dirk, I wasn't expecting to get deep. What are my <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, I don't have them. I mean, I have them, but I don't remember them. I, most of my life, I've been one of those guys that just doesn't remember his dreams. I wake up and I have no recollection. Now, that being said, last night, I clearly had bad dreams because I woke up super grumpy this morning, oh. but I still couldn't remember them. I had no recollection. Wow. So they're not stress dreams then. 
Not they, they maybe, I guess. I don't know. I just, I don't remember them. I never remember my dreams. Uh, I can, you know, maybe three times a year, I will remember my dreams. Like my wife has the craziest damn dreams. Like she's got like full blown, like action horror movie dreams going on and all sorts of stuff. And she remembers every little detail. And I'm just like, Mm, I got nothing. I, I I literally do not like, I would have to set, you know how they always say for like therapy and stuff, keep a dream journal. I'd like have to actually like, I don't know, set alarms throughout the night, hoping right. to wake me up. And then I could scribble because I just, I never remember my dreams. You just go in there and be like, well, I'm walking around. I was also in patch Adams. There's paint on the ground and I'm stepping and they're like, wait, this is what dreams may come. And you're like, Oh, right. I, I usually just tell people I use it cause I'm a former goth kid. So I usually just tell people my dreams are black, like my soul. Oh, excellent. <laughs> That's perfect. From one still kind of a goth kid to another. I, love yeah, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say former. I mean, in my, I, I can't look like a goth kid, but in my, in my soul, I am still a goth kid. So yeah, uh, yeah. We, so my, I, I, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, just my wife and I stopped. We, we tried to say we were ex goths and then we were like, I mean, look at our clothes and what we listen to. I mean, <laughs> it's in our blood. Why try to run from it, you know? Yeah, my typical work attire is black suit, black shirt, black tie. I am always in all black because yeah. you you can, you'll just, you'll never take it fully out of me. It's just, it's a suit now, not yeah. like Doc Martens and black fingernails, but right. Uh, yeah. I don't have the black fingernails, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's funny when it's just something that's in you because you don't ever think about it. And then somebody will comment on it and you're like, Oh, Oh yeah. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> I guess I am only wearing black <laughs> all yeah. the time. Exactly. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for revisiting Shakedown. I really appreciate it. Um, Adkins Undisputed Podcast is the podcast. Yes. Correct. Uh, any Anything else you want to throw out there right now? Um, I also do some work. I uh, haven't for a while, but uh, with the Dana Buckler show, you can, uh, with my good friend Dana Buckler, uh, you can find that at Linktree slash Dana Buckler show. That's where you can find all his social media and everywhere his podcast is. Um, other than that, no, I, I guess, you know, I, I just guessed it on uh, our mutual friend, Lindsay Wilkins, Schlock and Awe yes. uh, podcast. Uh, she's terrific. I love her to death. Um, you know, and I pop up on other podcasts periodically. So if you want to find out all the stuff I do, the best thing to do is just follow me on Twitter at Hibachi Justice. I'm not really on any other social media. I hate Instagram and I ditched Facebook years ago. So at Hibachi Justice on Twitter, you'll find everything else I'm doing by following me there. There you go. Well, thanks again, Mike. This has been awesome. Dirk, this uh, is so much fun, man. This was a blast. Thank uh, you. Great. Thank oh. you. As always, I'm Dirk Marshall, and this has been BH Us.